0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from Old Town Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Old Town Church is passionate about making disciples for the glory of God in Old Town and around the world by inviting people to know the gospel, experience biblical community, and live on mission. If you're in the Rock Hill area, we invite you to join us for worship every Sunday. If you're not in our area, we encourage you to find a gospel-believing church near you. We hope this podcast is a blessing to you as we seek to follow Jesus in the grace of his gospel. Thanks for listening. Uh, Good morning, I'm Andy Lewis. This is my wife, Cindy Lewis, and we are partners here at Old Town Church. And we're gonna be reading the scripture for today. Uh, Yeah, I got the right one. Um, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, all the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quickly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam, wait, yep, that's right. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. All of y'all are like, oh my gosh, what are we doing today? Um, <laughs> uh, if this is your, so uh, no joke. So uh, hi, I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, five minutes before service, there was like six people in here. And and uh, another guy and I were joking. We're like, they read the passage. And they're like, no, I am not coming to that. Um, but uh, we are so glad that you're here this morning. I, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you trusted someone who was sort of in an authority position over you, and they just led you wrong. Um, I was talking to Megan about this this morning. And uh, Megan's my wife. And she has two older brothers. So she's the youngest of three. And, and she said, uh, you know, There were times in her childhood where her brothers would wake her up in the middle of the night convince her that it was morning time and get her to like take a shower and get ready for the whole day of school and it was like the middle of the night and so then she'd look at the clock and realize it wasn't it you know my brother one time um uh because I trusted him and this was the last time uh he 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 filled oreos he took the cream out and filled them with mayonnaise and gave them to me to eat and um I trusted him and and I I haven't talked to him I was five when that happened I haven't talked to him since um Uh, That's not true. But, uh, you know, sometimes we we trust people in that way. And and these are, are, um, this is about the only fun and funny thing I'll talk about the rest of the service. So I was trying to, I almost told you all a story about a dream I had the other night where Beyonce and Jay-Z were my new neighbors. Um, But, uh, because I thought, let's start with something fun, because then from there, it's just buckle up, all right? And so, uh, but, you know, there there are times where, where there are people in authority in our lives, and, and I've told some funny stories of how that can go wrong, but the reality of it is there's a lot of hurt that's associated with that, and our passage has a lot to say about that today. And so this, I just want to start this morning, uh, church. First of all, if, if, you are, if you're like, I'm just checking out church for the first time this morning, I've never been to this church, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus, this is going to come up. This is a little bit of a family meeting uh, that we welcome you into because we want you to know what the scripture teaches. But in this passage right here, it's a little bit of like, hey, let's huddle up and let's just talk about how we operate together. And so in that way, uh, you're getting a glimpse into a family meeting that that was happening here. And and I think uh, this is a passage where it's never more pertinent than for us to say, this is the word of the Lord. Where where we come before a passage like this and, and we are reminded that these words are inspired by God, that they are meant to be used for his glory, for the building up of his church, and our personal growth and and, and flourishing. Uh, this is a hard passage, it's a hard teaching. And so I think at the very beginning, what I wanna do is, is warn us a little bit uh, that what we're gonna talk about is, is gonna be somewhat counterintuitive to the culture uh, that, that we are in right now, the, the prevailing thoughts of culture. The culture is gonna say this is an archaic way of thinking and, um, and, and that this is not meant to be applied in our modern culture. And I just If I could want to expose a little bit of the pride of a statement like that, that um, somehow we have evolved as a species so much that we have outthought what God thought about a really long time ago. Like we've got to the point where like, Hey, uh, what God meant then doesn't really apply to us now. That's a very arrogant position for us to take that we have somehow progressed beyond the wisdom of God. And, and so as we've said before, as we approach this passage, We've, we've got to, uh, uh, you know, just be careful that the Bible would shape our view of culture and that we not let the culture shape our view of the Bible, all right? Because we, we can do one or the other. And, and what we want to do is come before the word of the Lord and let that shape the, view, the way that we view culture. And so, uh, church, uh, an, another caution for us, just because we believe God's word is perfect and infallible, like we believe this is true in in every way, it means we do not get to pick and choose what we like from it. I can't today just because I don't like the way some of this is worded. Rip this page out of my Bible so that I can just flip on to the next page. When we accept this as God's perfect teaching, we take the whole thing, and and so uh, even if if you you know we don't really like uh, what it has to say, and so I just. From a pastoral perspective, I want you to know that the pastors of our church have been studying this passage for a few months now. Um, we, we've uh, approached this, uh, have, have met with many others, have met with uh, many who are, are, are long deceased and reading their writings and their views of this. And um, we've studied this to the best of our ability and uh, have tried to lay aside two things. First, our, cur- uh, our cur- sort of current cultural view. We don't want that to impact how we interpret this passage, but also uh, just our past history. We also don't want to let our traditions impact the way that we view this. We want to just come before God's Word and and read this as it is. And so what we're going to do today and what I'm going to do is just present what we believe is the best interpretation that aligns with the whole of Scripture, Uh, not seeking to add anything the Scripture doesn't teach and also not seeking to restrict something that the Scripture does teach. And so um, as we approach the passage... Uh, I think all of us, myself included, just it's like we approach it with humility. Lord, would you teach us what this has to say this morning? And so what I want to do is just pray for us all as we approach uh, what is a very difficult, but I think also life-giving passage today. So join me in prayer. Father, we uh, come to you just asking for help. Would you help us as we uh, read these words? And we're like, man, what does that mean? That sounds crazy. Um, And so Lord, help us. And, And God, we come to you saying, this is your word and it is good and God we believe that you are good and there might even be moments where we're not sure if we trust that you are good would you help us even there Um, and Lord I I pray ultimately as we approach this passage just for the health of this particular faith family God would you unite us in what we believe your word teaches and God help us to function in a healthy way in what you've called us to and so um, God I pray that a, a week like this a passage like this would be a foundation for us to grow on as a church, God, ultimately so that we can be healthy, so that we can help one another grow to to know and follow you more, and that we can take the message of your beautiful gospel out to our community. So uh, help us, God. We just need your help this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, our big idea today is going to be this, that God designed his church to flourish and glorify him through proper structure and conduct. That that what we're talking about here is that healthy church is going to display God's glory by aligning with his design for its structure and its conduct and its behavior. And so what what I hope we're going to see is that God has this design that he has for his church and it's good for everybody. Uh, Ultimately, it's good for all of us. It helps others see how good he is. And so what we want to do is, is join together. I'm just asking you to go on a journey with me of saying, like, Lord, help us see what your scripture says and help us to believe that and live in light of it. And so um, as we approach 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 15, we've got to start with the context. What are we even reading and where is it situated in the Bible? We, we began last week um, just by looking at this, this. We're in a new section. So we're going to cover this section over five weeks. We've broken it down into five passages. But in this letter from Paul to Timothy, it's one complete thought. And so he began last week by, by encouraging the church to, to be a, a prayerful community. And, and, and this week, uh, what we need to, as we begin, we got to go to the very end of this section where Paul says, hey, here's why I'm writing this. So Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so what Paul is writing to us is how we ought to behave in God's household. That's, the, that's where this section is situated in. Though Paul addresses specific issues that were happening in the Ephesian church in their gatherings, they're not limited to the specific regular worship gathering. All right? So though we should apply what's taught here to our worship gatherings together, uh, it's also extended to our life in community with one another throughout the week and our just operation as a family of faith, our operation as a church family. Uh, Paul uses this term, the household of God. And so that's why this is written. And so as we approach this passage today, we're seeing it in the context of Paul saying, hey, I'm writing this so that you know how you ought to behave in the household of God. And so with that, we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to begin with verses 8 through 10. And what I think we can see here is that proper conduct in the church glorifies God. Proper conduct in the church glorifies God. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So Paul begins with the men, verse 8 here. He begins with the men and addresses their behavior. He's saying, hey, in every place. And so what Paul's painting here is a picture of their corporate gathering, but also their gathering throughout the week in people's homes or wherever they were in every place. I desire that men should pray. Now, this doesn't mean women shouldn't pray, all right? This is more just like I'm addressing the men. I'm addressing that I want you to be prayerful, and here's something I want to call out in you, um, because he's going to address something specifically going on with the men. He says, "I I want you to pray lifting holy hands. Now, in that time, the normal position for prayer was with hands lifted up. They would stand up, and their hands would be lifted, all right? And, and this is a, out, of, out of reverence for God, but it was also just the assumed position of prayer, that they were receiving something from God. And so they would pray with their hands lifted. But Paul here is not just talking about the position of the person, but the condition of their heart. He's not just saying, I just want you to pray with hands lifted. I want you to pray lifting holy hands. He's talking about the heart condition of these people. All right, holy hands is symbolic of a pure heart. Now, our hands are only made holy through the cleansing that comes through the forgiveness purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Like, that's the only way we are holy. There is no other way that we can be holy, no other way that we can be righteous before God other than what Jesus has done for us. All right? And so there is one part that in in position we are holy because Jesus has, has made a way for us to be forgiven. But I think it's extending beyond that that beyond just being a believer in Jesus Christ and having received salvation, there is the current state of the heart as well. Uh, are we in a current state of, of per, in the pursuit of holiness? Am I currently still living in submission to God or am I in a time of pursuing myself, which I don't know about you, but I feel like in my given day, there's like 30 different changes in that. Like, you know, in a, in a moment I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm submitted to the Lord. And then in the next moment, I'm like, I want something for me and And so paul is is encouraging them. I pray men that you would you would, with hands with holy hands lifted, submit yourselves before the Lord. And then he says specifically, without anger or quarrelling. All right. Now, what he is doing here is he's definitely addressing, uh, something that was going on with, within the church there. Remember, the focus here is the condition of the heart, not the position of the one praying. And, and, and so what's happening in, in the Ephesian church, if we look back, there's a lot of arguments over what was being taught. There was a lot of uh, anger over that. And so they were they were coming into church and like getting into it a little bit. And so Paul's like, y'all got to stop that. And I want you to lead out and praying with holy hands lifted to the Lord. That You're going to lay aside the anger. You're going to lay aside the quarreling. But, but, but I, think, I think something that's important to see is anger, right, is internal, quarreling is external. So there's this like internal, external thing going on here. Anger often, I don't know about you, when I, when I get anger, angry, it's often rooted in self-righteousness. Like it's me, it's my pride. Like I get angry because you have violated something, like I thought I deserved something and, and you didn't adhere to that. And so I get angry at you. I get the people who expose my pride and self-righteousness the most are my kids. I'm like, this is, you have invaded my kingdom and, and you are not treating me as king. All right. And so when my kids do that, I get angry. All right. And they will test if this is me confessing. I'm not saying anything bad about them. I'm talking about me. All right. But what it does, it exposes my pride. This is, my anger is rooted in, you should worship me. You should do what I have to say. You should do things the way that I like them done. That's self-righteousness. That's pride. That's self-glory. I want the glory for myself, and you're not giving it to me. And so I have this, this anger that's stirring up internally. But there was also a, a, a quarreling, this external thing that was going on as the men of Ephesus were arguing with, with one another. That quarreling became a distraction to the public gathering. I mean, think about it. If you came in here every Sunday and, like, during the service, people were like, oh! Like people like yelling at each other and all this is going on. You're like, first of all, I don't want to go. Uh, second of all, I, I don't even know if I worship today because I was so distracted by all the arguing, the anger that was, was occurring. And so that's what Paul's addressing. Like you are hindering the worship gathering in the way that you come in with hearts that are angry and the way that you're quarreling with one another. And, and so Paul addresses that. He's, he's there to help facilitate God being glorified in the gatherings. And so men, men specifically... The call here and the challenge here is that we would, would lead out in prayer in our gatherings, in the corporate gathering, in our small group gatherings, when we gather together just as men, that we would be ones who would, who would unite together, not focusing on our differences, but uniting in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would be prayerful in the way that we are with one another. And, and so, men, I, I just, uh, as your pastor, so if I've got to have all the men and and, and if, you, if you're a boy and you feel like I'm not a man yet, I'm talking to you too, because this is you one day and this is you now. So I, all, all male eyes on me right now. I just, I, I want to call something out that's prevalent in the global church as a whole, but I see it in us too. And that's a spiritual passivity among the men of our church. A, a, a lack of willingness to, to lead out and engage, a lack of willingness to... To be the ones who, who really step forward in pursuit of Christ. And, and men, this is not a like shame on you. This is a call to say, guys, there is more. There is, there is beauty and delight in us knowing and following Jesus. And so I'm, all, all I'm doing is not to say shame on you. You should feel shame for not being leaders in this way. There are so many ways you are leading in this. So this isn't to put you down, but to say there is more men and instead of us our, our root sin our roots it's always going to be passivity it started in the garden it's still prevalent today right like what we are we are we are prone towards passivity and so men the thing that I'm, I'm calling myself to I'm calling us to is is to step forward in leadership to not be passive but to be active and so I'll even just say this like I have been so changed this week already. And this is not like spiritual pastor talk. I'm not always good at what I'm about to say here. This four x 40 challenge that we're doing has, has changed me this week, just in the couple of days that I've been doing it. The Lord has really like in these couple of minutes where I'm just like praying in that way, I feel like the Lord has really been speaking to me, giving me new things to pray. And so men, I just want to call us towards that. If I could call you towards anything, like jump on that four by 40 challenge. Let's, for these next 36 days or whatever's left, let's just, let's just be men who seek the Lord and prayer, pray on behalf of the lost and pray for our church. This is one way we can step out of passivity and into activity. So I'm not saying stand up on the stage. I'm saying, man, pursue the Lord in your daily life. Let's be active in that way. And so just want to call us to that, as I think Paul is also calling the men of Ephesus to that. And then in verse 9 through 10, Paul switches over to the women, talking about their behavior and conduct within the church. He says, uh, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. And then he goes on to list things. But, but they should adorn themselves with, verse 10, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so, uh, just like, I will say this, just like Paul wasn't saying, because he said, men, I want you to pray. Uh, but that doesn't mean women can't pray. In this same way, Paul's address to these women is specific to them, but it also applies to, uh, I think, the men as well. Um, He says, adorn yourselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. In this specific instance, this is what was happening. In Ephesus, there was like a style, and like the rich people wore this stuff, all right? Not this stuff, but you know what I mean, like gold and braided hair and all these like fancy clothes and stuff. And And so what was happening in the church, the women were coming in, and, and they were trying to sort of assert uh, position by the way that they dressed. It would make other people feel bad. It would draw attention to themselves. They were, they were trying to draw attention to themselves in a way that was negative for the worship of the church, in a way that it was self-glorifying for them. And and so what Paul's doing is specifically stepping into, hey, you are, you are behaving as the women of the culture who do not profess godliness. Uh, what you need to do is be women who, though since you profess godliness, that you would adorn yourselves in that same way. And, and so not, not flashy and flaunting, but to, to dress in respectable apparel. He, he says, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. So I want to just talk a little bit about, does that mean like if you're a woman in here, you're like, oh my gosh, my hair is braided. This is so awkward. Um, like that's not how we apply this, okay? So, so when we take a cultural moment like that, and, and we move over to our current, our present today. The, the, we're going to talk about timeless truths a lot today. The timeless truth is that women cannot wear gold in the, in the worship gathering, that women can't braid their hair in the worship gathering. The principle up under what Paul was talking about was these women were drawing attention to themselves in the way that they were dressing. And so the timeless truth that carries over to us today is really more about how are we Is there a way that you are drawing attention to yourself that's distracting to the worship gathering? Is there a way, maybe said another way, is there a way that you are trying to get glory for yourself that belongs to God? Because that's ultimately what's at stake here. That's what this whole, with the men and with the women, it's like, hey, listen, I want you to behave yourselves appropriately so that God gets the glory and you don't. And and so men, I want to call out your anger, women, I want to call out these, these ways that you're trying to draw attention to yourself. And so So for you today, like if you're wearing gold, your hair's braided, you got pearls, you're good. Like, it's fine. It's more, it's a heart thing. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the heart here. So what's going on in your heart? You might be doing something no one even notices, but you know for you, you're trying to get attention for yourself. And and so I I think for us, that's the principle that Paul is drawing us here to, to, that you would adorn yourself with what's, what's proper with good works. A godly woman seeks to adorn herself with good works, not with good looks. And so it's really about answering that question. Am I, am I dressing in a way? Am I doing something in a way that's seeking to draw attention to myself and, and getting a glory that really belongs to God? And, and I think Paul, Paul uses that phrase, uh, the, those who profess godliness. I think that's such a key aspect that Paul is essentially saying that women should dress and act in a way that aligns with what they say they believe. And, and um, there should be alignment uh, with, with their allegiance to Jesus. If, if Jesus is our king that they're not seeking to gain glory for themselves or with that glory to go to him. So that's, that's the principle. That's the timeless truth that like you can wear gold and you're good, but like, are you seeking to gain glory that actually belongs to God? And so we need to be careful in our gatherings here, in our corporate gathering, in your small groups, when you're meeting up for coffee, that the, the focus is on the glory of God, all right? And so that's what we're, we're aiming for here. Uh, and so we see here in these verses, the proper conduct in the church glorifies God. Now, in verses 11 and 12, what I think we can see is that proper structure of the church is established by God. Now, this is, we got like, I feel like I have to stretch before I do this. All right. So, so, so I want to talk about interpretive methods. And you're like, huh? Okay. So when we come to scripture, it's really important for us how we interpret what a scripture means is really, really important. Okay. Uh, we, we talked a minute ago about finding the timeless truth in a passage. What, what applies then and applies now too? What is the timeless truth from that culture to this culture? Now, one way we do that is by letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay? So, so uh, one guy said that, that within a passage of Scripture, uh, as you're interpreting it, there's a whole other constellation of passages that it's connected to that help us understand what it means. And, and so what you don't want to do is take one scripture out of the Bible and then apply it, all right? And and so, like, I'm going to take this one completely out of its context, completely out of the context of the rest of scripture, and then I'm going to seek to apply that to my life. And I'll give you an example uh, that you're like, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, Mark chapter 9, Jesus teaches this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. All right, now we could take that passage out of Scripture and we could all limp in here with blind next week, right? Like we're just like, man, I have a sinning all over the place and I've got nothing to be... Mo-. Like that's not the principle. Jesus wasn't saying literally do that. But if you take that passage out and you don't interpret it in light of the whole Scripture, you're going to misapply it. And, and I think for us today, that's what we, we want to make sure that we're not doing today. All right, so the question that we want to ask is what out of these verses is supported in the rest of Scripture? Where do we see the rest of Scripture supporting the ideas uh, that we get from here? There we can find that timeless truth that we can confidently apply. So I say that, and we hit the verse 11, which says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now, uh, the first phrase here is, let a woman learn. And I don't want to just pass over those words as if they weren't completely countercultural to the moment at that, at that time. I think one of the foundations of this passage is Paul is arguing for women to have an equal footing in learning and being trained as disciples of Jesus Christ. That's not what was happening at that time. Women were not valued in that way. And so the Bible is actually very countercultural in saying there's equality with which women should be taught and raised up as disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and so Paul is laying that foundation from the very beginning. And he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, this word quietly is more about attitude, okay? So when we think about being quiet, it's more and it's an attitude of, of quietness. And, and one way that we can get there is if you look just in this chapter, there's two other references to that word quiet, all right? Up in verse two, it talks about Christians being able to live a peaceful and quiet life, all right? And so this is a, a, it's an attitude of peacefulness. It's a lifestyle of of peacefulness when it's talking about quiet. And then in verse 12, he contrasts the idea of remaining quiet with exercising authority. And so he's drawing a contrast between quietness and exercising authority. And, And so the idea of that word quiet is not meant to imply wordlessness, okay? This is not that, that a, a woman should, should come in and, and not speak and, and that she should remain in complete silence. That's not what this is talking about. It's more an attitude of peacefulness, that, that there is a, a, a peacefulness in which she's doing that. So the idea in this passage is that a, a woman would learn, that we make room for that, and, and learn in peaceful submission that there is a peaceful submission. Now, we're going to come back to the idea of submission in a minute, but just hold on to that right there, all right? He says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Now, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? If a woman is not to teach nor to teach a man, then what do we do with all of the examples in Scripture where that occurred? How are we to understand if there's this prohibition on women teaching or teaching a man, then what do we do with the passages of Scripture where a woman taught and taught a man? For example, uh, Titus 2, 3 through 5, where uh, there's an instruction for women to teach other women and younger women. In 2 Timothy 1, where we see these examples of, of women teaching children and sons. In Acts chapter 18, you've got uh, uh, Apollos was out teaching and Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla being a woman, was sitting there and was like, hey, let's pull this guy aside. And they instructed him in the ways of Jesus. And so there's a teaching that occurred from, from Priscilla to this guy, Apollos, who then went and taught. And so we have these examples of that happening. You take the great commission, like Jesus was like, go out and I want you to teach everybody, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's this command of all believers To teach, And so to flat out say, like across the board, women should not teach men would not align with the rest of the biblical experience. And so to best understand what Paul means, I think what we need to do is look at the whole of this verse that's going to help illuminate what that word teach is really getting to. It says in that phrase to teach or to exercise authority. The article connecting those two things actually brings those together as as one concept. These are intertwined ideas to teach and to exercise authority authority. Essentially, what we see in this phrase are the primary responsibilities of of the office of elder to teach and to exercise authority. In chapter 3, what's going to follow this passage next is that we're going to see one of the unique qualifications of an elder of a church is their ability to teach, that they are given an, uh, uh, an ability to teach and an authority to teach within the church. That's one of their primary roles, leading the church through teaching. And so that this type of teaching—it's it's an authoritative teaching. It's a, to teach with authority. And so, so we believe the best way to understand this phrase is to simply see that Paul is saying that he does not permit a woman to practice the role of an elder in the church; that she is not to teach and to exercise authority; that she's not to teach with an elder's authority or lead with the authority of an elder. This is one of the reasons that we believe that the office of elders only for qualified men in accordance with the scripture. And we'll talk about that more next week. That's our next passage. And it says, to, to, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, my question is, what man? What, what men is, she, is, is Paul talking about when he's saying he doesn't permit that? A follow-up question for me is, does that mean that all women should submit to all men? Are all men in the church authorities over all women in the church? And I think the answer to that question is No. I think what we see here is that the man that Paul is referring to is men in authority in the church, namely the elders. I think that's who Paul is talking about here. Again, that's why he slips into the next verses about saying what is an elder, who is qualified to be an elder. So he's not talking about every man. So, For example, my wife Megan is, uh, does, is not, does not need to submit herself to Brian Alden. all right? He is not her husband, and he is not a, an elder in our church, and so, Megan does not need to submit to him just because she is a woman and he is a man. Um, in the biblical concept of submission and authority, she is only to submit to her husband and to the elders of her church. And so, now Paul brings the structure from the home, this idea of headship within the home, male headship in the home, into the home of God, into the household of God, into the faith family. This idea of headship and submission. It's not headship of men and the submission of all women but the headship of pastors in the submission of the church to the pastors. There's this complementary relationship in which these two things work together to accomplish the purposes of God according to their gifts. Now, let's just like step aside for a second. And as I've been using the words submit, submission, submissiveness, and using the word authority, we like, I'm sweating, I'll just be honest. Like it's, you're just, man, it's like we bring something into that. When when I use those words, when the scripture uses these words, like you bring, based off of your beliefs, your thoughts, your experiences, you bring in something that causes you to think of this in a certain way. Each of us does that. Many of us have an internal visceral response to the idea of submitting to someone in authority. And, And the reason is because we've experienced a person in our life in authority who's abused or manipulated that authority and it's harmed us right? Megan and I, we watched a documentary. Like, we're weird. We watch weird, like, cult documentaries. So we watched one last night, and it was this, this, um, uh, this, like, fundamentalist Mormon polygamist guy uh, just, like, totally abused his authority as the prophet uh, in order to abuse and harm tons of women and little girls. It's awful. Like, the whole night, I was, like, Ugh! I was, like, on the couch, like, oh, and i Punch this guy. Like, I can't believe that. But the reality of it is that's an extreme version, but not uncommon. Like, we could sit around and talk for a while at least about things we've heard, if not about things that we've personally experienced. And so no wonder we're hesitant to submit to authority or or that we, we, we balk at the idea of doing that. Because for thousands of years, people, and especially men, have abused their authority to get what they want and hurt other people this is just true. This has happened. And unfortunately, this occurs frequently within the home and within the household of God in the church. And so there can be this inverse relationship to abuse of authority and someone's willingness and capability to submit to it. You know what I'm saying? So like the the more authority is abused, the harder it is to submit to that authority. To the extent that authority is abused, submission is going to be strained at least. And so we must recognize that not all authority has been used appropriately. Not all authority has been used the way that God designed it in its good and perfect way. We must recognize when our own bad experiences of authority are impacting the way we hear and receive the word of God. Church, the authority given by God is meant to be placed in the hands of humble servants who understand that they're ultimately in submission to the chief authority, the head of the family and the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ. And God's design of authority and submission, listen, this is important, that the one in authority is seeking to serve the one that they're leading. They're not using them for their own gain. They're, they're willing to lay their life down for them. They'll sacrifice themselves for them. This is God designed authority on display fully in Jesus in his relationship with God the Father. Think about like Jesus and God, like they're Jesus condescended. He came to the earth obeying his Father, submitting to his Father's will, laid himself down for us so that we could experience relationship with the Father for eternity. So as we think about authority and submission, like Jesus is the picture that's it, man. That's it. That's how God designed it. And so he says, Church, this is it. first in the home, this is how I want you to function. Husbands, I want you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do? He gave himself up for the church. And, and so husbands are supposed to submit, uh, to, to, to lay themselves down to serve their wives and serve their families. And within the church, it's the same of the elders that the leaders of the church, they're not taking this authority to gain for themselves and gain power and gain prestige. And no, they're laying themselves down. They put themselves in between the wolves and the sheep. They take the bites for the sheep. This is the role, this is the authority that God has designed. this is what we refer to as complementarianism, that God has given different roles to men and to women in the home and in the church and that there is a structure designed by God for the good of everyone. So, the idea of authority and submission this is not meant to, this is not hierarchies here. This is not meant to convey inequity, inequality. Like, there is men and women were created equal. We were just given different gifts, we were given different abilities, we were given different bodies. God designed us differently, but it's good. We're meant to work together in that, that in the home, men are the head and the leader of the home, and a woman is to support her husband's leadership as they pursue God's mission together. They're a team, all right? This isn't just like, hey, I get to call all the shots. I heard a pastor once say, like, this, this idea of, like, I'm putting my foot down. It's like, I've never done that in our marriage. Like, like th- th- there is a leadership. It's not a you have to obey me, but it's like, Let's, let's, let's pursue the Lord together. Let me lead us in that way. The man is not to use the authority for power and self-service. He's instructed to serve his family and lay his life down for his family. And in the church, elders are given authority. In the church, all women and all men who are not elders are called to peacefully submit to that authority. And so, so this is a peaceful but not passive submission. I just want to say, like, I, I think there's a realm in which we're not called to just blind, weak, unengaged compliance. If the elders teach and lead in a way that's contrary to Scripture, then they're, they're to be called out. That we are not called to blindly submit to abusive authority in the home or in the church. And I just want to, like, I, we probe, geez. There, there are so many things we can't talk about today when it comes to the abuse of, of, of authority and the trauma that many of you have experienced because of that. And i just like, man, we wanna walk with you through whatever junk you are carrying from your past. And just acknowledge that I can't, in this morning, in this, I, we can't touch all of that today. But, but we, have, we have a team that has been working on processes to walk with people who have experienced trauma in many ways and we wanna, if, if that is you, then, then let us walk with you through that. We'll learn through this together, but we have a team that has prepared some stuff to, to walk with you through that. So come find me and I can get you connected with them because we can't talk about all that this morning. But man, there is, there's been so much hurt that has happened here. We're not called to blindly submit to abusive authority in the home or in the church. This, this submission, is a, it's a purposeful, thoughtful, sacrificial submission to God's design order in the home and in the church that submission requires strength and intentionality this is not easy those those elders in the church are called to steward that authority with great humility being willing to sacrifice them, them sacrifice themselves for the good of the church and so ultimately the role of the elder is a servant leader This is not someone who's seeking to gain a bigger platform, seeking to gain more followers. This is a servant who lays themselves down, but leads with great strength and humility. Ultimately, the elders of the church are submitted to the head of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. And so back to our passage here. In summary, what we feel like is Paul is calling the women to a peaceful submission to the elders of the church that he doesn't permit a woman to practice the role of an elder, but that women should be given equal opportunity to follow the leadership of the elders and the church and learn equally as disciples of Jesus. And church, we believe that proper structure of the church was established by God. We see this throughout the scripture. We're about to root it back in the creation story. And and the purpose of that and this design is that it would help the church grow healthy in every possible way so that the church can display the glory of God to our community. Finally, verses 13 through 15, I think we see that proper submission to God's design enables human flourishing. Paul goes back to the creative order. Listen to this. He says, for Adam was formed for, I'll be honest, the first time I read this, I was like, oh, God, this is awkward. All right. So because it, well, anyway, so he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And this is how you could read this. And Adam wasn't deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's not what it means, but that's how you can read it, right? And then he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. And I'm like, what? If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Listen, so this is, what, this is what's going on here, bigger picture. Paul goes back to the creative order of headship and submission within the marriage, pointing to Adam and Eve. And in doing this, Paul is rooting this idea of authority and submission in the church back to the creative order. He's putting it there. This is one way that we know that this particular teaching is a timeless truth because it's been, this was the design from the beginning. And and in pointing to Adam and Eve, Paul is looking back to the creative order that God established and acknowledging that harm, listen, this is the key, harm can come when we disrupt the order that God establishes. Like what he's, he's pointing to is that God's good design was there before sin ever entered the picture that he had set Adam up as head and placed Eve as his helper, and they were a team together to help subdue the earth and and to to have dominion over the land and over the plants and the animals. But then sin entered. So this idea of of male headship and complementarianism was there before sin. But sin distorted this good design when man was either passive or domineering as opposed to servant-leader and a woman desiring to take control and domineer instead of submitting and helping his headship. And so, like, you look at Adam and Eve. Instead of leading, what Adam did was he passively, when Eve was being tempted by Satan, he sat there passively. Instead of leading and protecting her, he gave her the authority to make the decision to disobey God. And the damage was immeasurable. In that moment... I want to, like, if guys read this, like, verse 13 and 14, you're like, yeah, Eve, that was your fault. It's like, no. Like, from what we can gather in that moment in the garden, Adam was standing there next to her. And he sat there while the serpent was lying to Eve about who God was. Adam has complete culpability in this moment. In his passivity. And so Paul's looking back to this to say there's an order that God designed, and it's good for everyone when we walk in accordance with this order. That good design of headship and submission is meant to display the gospel in the church's submission to the headship of Christ. It brings glory to God in that way. But if we disrupt that order, then that idea of flourishing, this, this, this enjoyment that we might have that, that, that there is health within this church and that each of us can flourish, when we disrupt the order, it messes that up. God designed it away. And when we live outside of God's design, it's not good for us. It's best when we live aligned with his design. And so then in, in verse 15, he's, I, I, okay, just like true, true moment right here. Like I'm not going to land much of anywhere on this verse. All right. Like, listen, like when you read this, yet yeah, she will be saved through childbearing. It's like, what? Like he, this is, let's let scripture interpret scripture. Okay, so let's just for a minute, let's, let's think. There's multiple views of this verse. We've, we've, every time we keep looking, we keep finding more. And so, I mean, it's like, you know, a lot of, a lot of very smart people landing in a lot of different directions. But as we let Scripture inter- interpret Scripture, is Paul saying that a woman experiences spiritual salvation through the act of childbearing? You don't have to nod your head, but I want you to think it in your mind. Is Paul saying that a woman can be saved through childbearing? No. We, we know that's not what scripture teaches about salvation, all right? What, what does scripture teach? That we are only saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that there is, that he is the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father except through him, including childbearing. So like, if we were to say that it's through childbearing that you are spiritually saved, that eliminates over half of the population. So this is not what it's teaching, that there's not spiritual salvation through the act of a woman birthing a child there's only one way by which we can be saved. But I do believe that spiritual salvation is in view here in this passage. Not a, a physical salvation, but a spiritual salvation from sin and judgment. So what do we do about this idea of salvation being attached to childbearing? And my answer is, I don't know. And, and I wanna just, if I could, maybe, um, maybe this is just one act of, of us saying humbly before you as a church, like we're not sure. And we don't want to say that we're sure if we don't actually know. Um, we're not really sure what this means. Now, one thing it could mean, and this would align with the scripture. It just is hard to make. It's hard to make sense of this verse. But I think I think that's the best way to land. Maybe is that as we're talking about Eve and her sin, and then we know that what happened after Eve's sin is God promised through you, I'm going to send the rescuer. Through through you, Eve, Eve was going to birth a child. And, and through that line, the Savior was going to come. And so ultimately, through that act of childbearing, the Savior, the Rescuer, was born. And so there is salvation through that. So whether this passage is specifically saying that, I'm not sure. But what we do know is that's true, right? That the Savior came that he was born, that he lived a perfect life, that he laid himself down for us so that our sin could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled with the Father, so that we can spend eternity with God forever. Through the birth, life, and death of Jesus, we can be saved. And and so church, uh, just coming back to our big idea here, God designed his church to flourish and to glorify him through proper structure and conduct. Paul addresses our conduct here. We'll talk even more about the structure in the weeks ahead as we address who is an elder, what is an elder, who is a deacon, what is a deacon. And if that, if you're like, man, I'm not coming the next two weeks. No, this is important and it's good, right? Because of this, because God designed it this way so that we can flourish and he can be glorified. And that's what we all want. We are all called to submit to God's good design. And when we do, it helps all of us grow. It helps all of us flourish. It brings God glory as the world sees the beauty of what he has designed. And so here's the question. This is, I'm just going to leave you with this, and then I'm going to pray for us this morning. The question for us today is this. Do we believe that God's design is good? I mean, really, that's what you've got to wrestle with. Like, do you believe? Can you read his scripture? Do you believe that his design is good? One thing we prayed for you this morning is that in your lack of trust of him, that he would give you more trust for him. Because sometimes you're like, I'm not sure that you are good. I'm not sure that I trust you. So will you help me to trust you more? And if we believe his design is good, how can we live more aligned with his design? Let me pray for you, church. Father, we give this to you. Spirit, we just ask that you would move amongst us. Show us where there are times, even just generally in life, where we are trying to take glory from you. That ultimately belongs to you and, and have it on ourselves. God, would you help us as we lead, as we submit, as we practice that authority that you have given in different places? God, would you would you use the beauty of this design uh, for this church to grow healthy together and ultimately to show the world your goodness? And God, I, I pray that in moments where we are, when we are not leading as servants, we're not practicing that authority as servants, or when we're not peacefully submitting, God, that you would correct us, that you would help us. And God, would you help us together as one team, just help the world behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. In see your great and matchless name we pray. Amen.